All right, our second reading uh, this morning comes from Romans chapter 7. I will read verse 15 through 25. If you're thinking that we read this last week, we did. And so we're going to read it again. Hear the word of the Lord. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil... I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So before I begin uh, my sermon this morning, I want all of us to take just a minute to think about ourselves. I want each of us to think about where we are in our walk with God. What stage we are at in our Christian pilgrimage. How far we have gotten in this process of our sanctification. We're working our way through Paul's epistle to the Romans and we're in this section that's on sanctification. Sanctification is the theological term for the unfolding, lifelong progression by which disciples of Jesus, born-again people, become more and more like Jesus, become more and more obedient to God's law, and less and less enslaved to the desires of the old self. The Great Commission... Jesus' final marching orders to the disciples before he left earth is partly about sanctification. Here's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now there are four parts to this commission. First is go. Go from where you are to where God is calling you. God sent Jesus into the world, and then Jesus in turn sends the church into the world. The church is always going. A church is always on a mission. A church that isn't 
uh, moving someplace is not a church. Go. The Great Commission's first part. The second part of the Great Commission is make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a person who decides to leave behind the old life and to start a new life as a student and as a follower of Jesus. To make that decision, that person must first understand the gospel. And so Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim and to explain the word of God so that others might become disciples too. And he sends us to all people, to people of all nations. The third part of the Great Commission is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Disciples of Jesus baptize new disciples. Two Sundays ago, I baptized Henry Schumacher. Some of you remember him. He's now 10 years old. He's a child of this congregation, was taught by many of you. His family has moved to Illinois, and I had the privilege of baptizing him uh, in his uh, new church out there. When disciples baptize new disciples, baptism becomes a visible sign of our entry into a fellowship of disciples, which is the church. Baptism is a sign of our entry into the church of Jesus Christ. Now, without a doubt, the baptism that Jesus mentions here in the Great Commission is a believer's baptism. The baptism of someone who has heard the gospel, repented of their old life, and decided to follow Jesus. But as a Reformed church, and Presbyterian churches fall into a larger family of Christian churches called Reformed, as a Reformed church, we also baptize infants. Infant children of disciples, that is. In this case, infant baptism is a sign that the children of disciples are also part of God's special covenantal family. Now, we don't believe that baptism washes away original sin or that it saves the infant. Rather, we believe that infant baptism is a sign that God has favored these children by placing them providentially into a community and a family of believers. When we baptize an infant here at HVPC, the parents and the entire church promise to teach the gospel to that child in the hope that one day that child will understand the gospel and will choose to become a disciple of Christ in the same way that their parents are disciples of Christ. And fourth, the fourth part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This is the sanctification part of the Great Commission. This is where we put into action what it is that we believe. Jesus taught his disciples how to live. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we obey everything that Jesus commanded. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can't say that we love Jesus if we don't do what Jesus tells us to do. We can't say that we're a disciple of Christ if we don't follow the teachings of Christ. Our sanctification mainly involves this fourth part of the Great Commission. Our sanctification mainly involves following the commands of Jesus. Now the New Testament is full of the commands of Jesus. His very first command was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're not disciples of Jesus if we 
don't repent. And Christian repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a perpetual lifestyle. The very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses, which were the, which was the document that launched the Protestant Reformation, the very first of the 95 theses reads this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, Matthew 4, 17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And I think Luther is right about that. And that's one of the reasons why we have a prayer of confession at the beginning of every worship service. It's one of the reasons why confessing our sins to one another, as James tells us to do, and holding one another accountable in love, as Paul tells us to do, are essential Christian disciplines. Here are some other commands of Jesus that we are to obey. Turn the other cheek. Love one another. Don't commit adultery and don't even lust after someone who isn't your spouse. Make no oaths. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Be on guard against every form of greed. These are all commands of Jesus. I'm sure that you can think of many others as well. When we think about sanctification, we are thinking about how well or how consistently we obey Christ's commands. When Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he means that he really loves these things that Jesus commands. And when he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. He's letting us know that he is not perfectly obeying all that Christ had commanded. He knows and loves what Jesus taught, but his batting average is less than perfect. Paul, when he was writing the letter to the Romans, was not yet fully sanctified. He is fully sanctified now. He's in the presence of the Most High God. But when he wrote this letter, he still had a ways to go. And so, let me go back to where I started. I want all of us this morning to take just a minute to think about ourselves. I want each of us to think about where we are in our walk with God, in our Christian pilgrimage, in our process of sanctification. Most of you have been going to church long enough that you know many of the things that Jesus commands his followers to do. How well and how consistently do you obey Christ's commands? Are there certain commands of Jesus that you are consistently and joyfully obeying? Are there other commands of Jesus that you almost never obey? Let's just spend a minute thinking about these questions.
Minutes a long time, isn't it? When you're thinking about the sin in your life. In his commentary on Romans, R.C. Sproul writes, the process of sanctification involves a radical reprogramming of the inner self. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which we read a piece of it this morning, tells us that because of this sanctification, a continual and irreconcilable war is going on in every believer. All of which means that sanctification isn't for the faint of heart. It's not for wimps because our old nature puts up quite a fight against our new nature. Whenever we reach for holiness, our flesh tries to drag us back into the muck. As long as we are striving forward toward obedience to Christ, our old self tries to hold us back, chained to the past and chained to old habits. In 1678, John Bunyan, an English Puritan lay preacher, published The Pilgrim's Progress. And that book has never been out of print since. It's been translated into more than 200 languages. It is an allegory of the Christian life. And the main character, whose name happens to be Christian, is on a journey from his hometown, City of Destruction to the celestial city, which sits atop of Mount Zion. And the road to his destination is the straight and narrow King's Highway. Christian's entry onto King's Highway and his progress along that road toward celestial city is the story of a lost soul's conversion, his justification by faith in Jesus, and his lifelong sanctification. As he rises ever higher and higher and nearer and nearer toward his goal of the celestial city. A lifelong pilgrimage is a good metaphor for the Christian life and sanctification. The pilgrim doesn't belong to the landscape that he's walking through. His home is not along the way. His home is where he's headed. Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter in the Bible talks about the heroes of the faith in days gone by, Enoch and Noah and Sarah and Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews says that they were not attached to the country they had come from, but rather they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They lived like pilgrims. We can think of our sanctification as the progress that we make walking up the rising road from where we have been to where we're going. But another metaphor for sanctification, and one I would like to explore a little this morning, is the garden. In a garden, we cultivate plants that produce the fruit we want. We prepare the soil, we sow the seed, we create the conditions where these plants can flourish, but there are other plants in the garden as well, unwanted plants, we call them weeds, and they too grow, and they too produce their own kind of fruit, and so as gardeners we go after those weeds with our hoes and with our herbicides. When we garden, 
We encourage the growth of the plants that produce good fruit, and we discourage the growth of the plants that produce bad fruit. We can think of our sanctification as the work of tending the gardens of our hearts. And the plants we are either encouraging or discouraging are the desires of the heart. Because our desires are what produce the fruit of our lives. Good desire, good fruit. Evil desire, evil fruit. The life of every Christian is a continual an irreconcilable war between conflicting desires. So many times we really want to do the right thing. But doggone it, that wrong thing is just so juicy and we want it too. It isn't that we don't know the right thing to do. It's just that the wrong thing seems so irresistible. And it is irresistible. In that one moment when we give in to temptation. But so often we immediately regret when we have done the wrong thing. We immediately regret giving in to the temptation. And in fact we find repulsive the very thing that we found irresistible a moment ago. It's funny. It's funny the game that our passions and our desires play and the havoc they wreak on ourselves. Paul draws attention to this irreconcilable war for us with his anguished cry, I do the things I don't want to do. And we all know what he's talking about because we've all been there ourselves. The human heart always acts in the moment of decision according to its strongest desires. At any given moment, there are many desires competing for our heart's attention. But the heart will always act, the will will always decide based upon its strongest desires in that given moment. All of you know that ignoring the temptation of Oreos is easy when you're stuffed. But when you're hungry, when your desire for food, when your desire for fatty food is heightened, the siren call of Oreos is very hard to resist. This is why you don't shop on an empty stomach. Like virtually every decision that we make, whether or not we overindulge in Oreos very much depends upon our desires in that moment. Which means that Sanctification can't just be about learning the difference between right and wrong. It has to be the process by which we more and more follow the right desire and increasingly ignore the wrong desire. Or put another way, it is the process by which the right desires become stronger and the wrong desires are diminished. Our personal sanctification is like the tending of the garden of our hearts. Planting, cultivating, encouraging the good desires. Uprooting and starving out and beating up the bad desires. Because it is the desires of our heart that determine how we will live. Fundamental change in human behavior 
And sanctification certainly qualifies as fundamental change in human behavior. Fundamental change in human behavior comes through fundamental change in our desires. And so we need to take responsibility for and be intentional about our desires. Cultivating the desires that lead to holiness. Starving the desires that lead to sin. So let me offer some practical suggestions for cultivating the gardens of our hearts so that the right desires will flourish and the wrong desires will be minimized. I'm not sure that these uh, tips are in any logical order, but I think they're helpful, so listen up. First, think about your desires before they actually kick in. Think about your desires before they actually kick in. The time to fix your sin problem is not when you're in the throes of temptation. That's already, generally speaking, too late. Instead, in an unhurried moment, in a relaxed time, think seriously about your heart's desires, about the things that you value, about what it is that you want most. Name those desires. Catalog them, all of them, the good ones and the bad ones. And then work on cultivating the right desires before you're tempted by the wrong desire. Second, use the ordinary means of grace. Use the ordinary means of grace. There is not much sense in praying for a miracle to change your heart if you have been ignoring the ordinary means of grace. A miracle is an extraordinary means of grace. It is a divine intervention into the universe to produce an extraordinary result. God can do that if he wants to, but most of the stuff that God does, he does for us not using miracles, but using what we call the ordinary means of grace. These are the means by which we receive regular, ongoing, daily blessings. They include things like scripture and prayer and participation in worship and sacraments and and fellowship with other Christians. These are the ordinary means that God has ordained to work a change in our hearts. If we want the desires of our hearts to change, we need to begin employing the ordinary means of grace. You can feel free to pray for a miracle as well, but I would advise you to do the regular things first. Number three, stay in church. Stay in church. The worst thing you can do when you're plagued by a pattern of sin is to remove yourself from the church. Now, lots of people do that. They feel guilty or they're worried about being found out or... Perhaps they know that deep down that hanging around with God and God's people will put an end to what they're doing and they really kind of want to do what they're doing and so they run away from the church. Don't. When you are feeling most sinful, get yourself to church. Hang out with God's people. Number four, replace bad desires with good desires. Replace bad desires with good desires. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but you can actually do it. There's a way that you can fool your brain into replacing your bad desires with good desires. For example, if your desire is for juicy gossip, 
If you just love telling tales about who has done what to whom, if you get a little charge every time you share some secret knowledge that you have, you can cultivate a a new desire. A desire, for example, of praising people or a desire for telling good stories about people behind their back. A desire for revealing the virtues of somebody. And you'll find that you can be just as easily thrilled by holiness as by evil. Okay, those are four suggestions. That's the word of Dan, not the word of God. Often when we try to reform ourselves, when we try to improve our character, when we try to turn over a new leaf, we focus on our actions and on our behaviors. We say to ourselves, I'm never going to get drunk again. I'm not going to have an angry outburst again. I'm not going to give in to lust again. I'm not going to gossip again. I won't lie again. We say to ourselves, I'm going to be temperate in my drinking. I'm going to be gentle with my family. I'm going to keep my sexual desires in check. I will only speak well of others. I will tell the plain truth every time. We make resolutions. We make promises to ourselves that next time we're going to do the right thing. And those resolutions and promises are good. And they spring from good intentions. They spring from a genuine love of the things of God. But when the next time comes, all too often... We find ourselves saying, like the Apostle Paul, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And that's because we need to look deeper than our actions and behaviors. And we need to begin to look at our desires. Because out of our desires, our actions spring to life. In the garden of our hearts... What desires are growing? We know that this side of glory, our garden will contain both good and evil desires. But which desires are we cultivating? Are we giving space to? Are we watering? And which desires are we beating back with our hose and leaving parched? Do we take responsibility for our desires? Or do we say... Hey, that's just the way I am, and I can't change. As R.C. Sproul said, the process of sanctification involves a radical reprogramming of the inner self. If you are a Christian, then you have been called to a life that involves a radical reprogramming of your inner self. Now, here's the truth. We can nourish and encourage our good desires so that they produce a bumper crop of good works. And we can nip our evil desires in the bud long before they produce evil fruit. May the glory of Christ and the blessing of God's people be our greatest desire. Let us pray. Almighty God, we honor you and we bless your name this day and we thank you for the words of Scripture. We thank you for Brother Paul. Thank you for him being so honest with us about the struggles in his life. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to struggle with sin in our lives, that we would continue to battle it, that we would never be content 
to wallow in sin. Lord, I pray that you would continue to fill us with your word and with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us the will to cultivate the right desires in our heart. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be full of good fruit and that we would uh, present our lives as living sacrifices to you. That the way we live and the way we talk and the things that we think about would bring not only blessing to us and to the people around us, our families and the community around us, but also would bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.